Our podcast is a collection of honest stories and conversations with people who have learned and are continuing to learn to live with direction and intention, even when life gets crazy. Our hope is that this podcast will inspire you and provide you the tools to start living with more intention and a sense of possibility and purpose. Today, our podcast interview is with a guy that actually you probably all know quite mm-hmm. well, uh, Zach Giffen, um, who is famous for a bunch of things. But well, most... he's a pioneer of the tiny home he movement, is. Yeah. and we are so grateful for just the path that he's laid, the trail that he's foraged, and yeah. for where we can come in now as tiny home builders from legislation and a passion to see reform happen um, on on the legislation to what he's doing for veterans and affordable housing to his show, Tiny House Nation, yeah. and the behind the scenes that we saw there. Yeah. Um, many of you have probably seen it. Well, what I loved about it is like, I'm really skeptical about TV, as I believe we all should be. But it's interesting, he's not just a pretty face, he's not just a good talker, he's not just you know, a guy that whose name we know, it's like he's actually hugely invested, mm-hmm. hugely invested in the uh, in the movement and he's quite talented too. So mm-hmm. it's good to see that there's like a ton of substance behind that right. uh, public persona. He so. lives a very thoughtful and intentional life and our conversation um, just meandered all over the place really on, touched mm-hmm. on a lot of really great topics. Yep. And so I hope you guys enjoy this conversation and maybe get to know Zach in a bit of a different light and uh, really dig in there. We were, we were chatting skiing. Wow, we were just talking skiing. Yeah, yeah so we could, love I mean, that. I would love yeah. to just sit down with Avir and hear all your skiing stories and tell you my three skiing stories. That'd be really fun. But I don't know if the world wants to hear that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> well, man, I, can I ask you, though, a little bit about skiing? So, like, you've, whatever, made a, a name for yourself as a skier before you were in the whole tiny home world. Like, how did you go about doing that? Like, is that because you were the world's greatest skier? Or is it because you were able to market yourself? Or is it a combination of everything? Like, how did that play out? Yeah, it's definitely a culmination of everything. I, I, I am a good skier. You know, I have a, a different style that I think people really tend to kind of think of as like a very controlled style. Um, and then I also have the ability to send it pretty big and stomp. So those are kind of my, af- you know, attributes yeah, as a yeah, skier. Yeah. I'm not like the trickiest of, of skiers, but I kind of worked myself into a niche um, when I was in my early 20s by moving to Mount Baker. And that niche was something where, you know, I was a park skier. So I did do, you know, the flips and the spins and the half pipe and whatnot in Colorado. So when I came to Mount Baker, I kind of had a bit of that gymnastic background. Um, And and what that did for me is at Mount Baker, people didn't really have access to the train parks to train for that. So I had an ability to kind of stand out with the with the flip spins I could do. And then. I just made that move, I think, a couple of years before the whole industry shifted to kind of really appreciate that very thing, which was park skiers kind of going out into the backcountry, right. bringing a little bit of their bags of tricks with them, you know, and I kind of would just happen to like land in a little bit of the front of the curve on that. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was in this position at Mount Baker, which is offered for beautiful imagery, working with some photographers. Um, and I knew it was just in the right place at the right time when the whole industry kind of shifted focus. And then a lot of companies wanted athletes to represent them in that specific area of skiing. And I was kind of like, Oh, Hey guys, I do, I do flips off cliffs, you know? So it, it was a little bit of luck and a whole lot of hard work and just a huge amount of, you know, um, essentially just kind of 
distancing myself from a lot of things that normal people look at absolute necessities for their happiness, you yeah. know, so that I could follow that path. And what I'm really talking about is like minimalism, like a very, right, of course, yeah, a very conscious effort to pare down on the expenses so that I could really focus in on pursuing the dream of being a skier. Um, and sometimes that's what it takes, right? You got to want it more than the other people. Right. Well, it's interesting. So I read a post of yours on Instagram a little while back. Uh, I've always been, I don't know, maybe the word I should use is confused maybe by, by minimalism. Like, I, I don't know that I've had a real good handle on, on what exactly this is. And I've heard different people's takes on it. And it seems like these takes vary a little bit, which I think is good. Mm -hmm. um, there's this, you know, this difference in kind of how people approach this. And I've always kind of thought of myself as like, I don't know, like I've, I've said, I'm like, I'm like, I'm a maximalist, if that's a, if that's a thing. And I feel like, however, you know, a lot of people who I've talked minimalism with, we kind of resonate on most things. It's like the idea of getting rid of what doesn't have value so you have room for more value. And that's how I've always kind of resonated with it. However, I, re I read a post of yours that Heather showed me where you talked about the space between. Um, I don't know how you worded it, but the idea of like that space between things kind of uh, building, I don't know, I'm going to use my own terms, like maybe an appetite for those things. Um, and I thought, I was like, hey, man, that's cool. That's not how I looked at that. But that's kind of an interesting take on that. And so I don't know if I understand fully the classic maybe definition of minimalism, but I mean, I don't know if you can tell me that maybe, but I, I liked your take on it. It was like, it was maybe a different perspective that I hadn't really dug deep into yet. So I don't know if you, I, is that, is that, is that your spin on it? Or is that maybe me not understanding minimalism in its kind of its purest form? I mean, I think that that was just my attempt to kind of relate a thought that I had been having for a while or that I, you know, I believe, which is that the practice of minimalism, we like to think about it as strictly, you know, just about the amount of clothes you own and the size of your home and these like material possessions. And what I was trying to include in the, the idea of minimalism is that it's also kind of just a life strategy that you can apply to different areas of your life that don't have to do with just the materials. And it's like, it really is about this conscious um, uh, strategy to cultivate happiness, you know, in, in being honest with ourselves that when we don't have something that we really enjoy, it's building that anticipation, right? And we can kind of create these moments in our lives that like our experience is just so deep and feeling so amazing because we don't have the things that we love every single day, right? You know? Right, right, right. So it's kind of an element of like scratching below the surface, getting into some more depth, some more important stuff. And then also, again, like that anticipation that builds. I think that's, it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. I feel like having spoken with a few people, like I said, these, these different takes on this and how people like make it personal for themselves and find a way to make it effective in their, their own lives and with their own uh, perspective. I think is a, uh, I, don't know, I, I like that. I like taking something and giving it that meaning, that depth. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, I went there. I, of course, really love to eat meat, right? And I, and I think this is a good example of, you know, I very much consciously try to make it so I'm not eating meat every meal. And hopefully, mm. you know, if I'm doing it right, I'm eating meat maybe one meal a day. And it's not because I don't love meat, but it, it, it's like because... If you give yourself a little while, if you love steak and you have it with every single meal, you stop loving it so much. You yeah. give yourself a little chunk. You're going to have a steak dinner that you remember and 
it's going to honestly make you happier than if you have the thing that you love every single bite. And if humanity can kind of think about that a little bit and realize that actually is going to improve your life if you kind of create those, like what I was talking about, those gaps, that this is a really big thing for society because, I mean, just, you know, consumption of meat is a really important discussion, right? Because of the carbon contribution. And if, you know, there's there's something like Meatless Mondays or something, and you can look up statistics. Mm -hmm. The entire country went meatless for one day. The amount of land that we'd preserve, the amount of um, carbon that wouldn't be is, is really profound. So, you know, I would say, hey, don't stop eating meat because you're guilty about the environment. Make sure that you don't eat meat all the time because you realize of what what a huge con contributor it is to things that you're not actually wanting to contribute to, but also give yourself those spaces because you know it's actually going to make your life happier. And I think that that, it's a hard one to convince people of. Right. Funny enough, like there's a, a thing in, in psychology and I don't know the name for, but using that as a tool where you tie something that you love to something that you, knew, you know you need to do. And it's a way of uh, kind of convincing yourself to do that to do that thing that you don't want to do, but you know you need to do because you've now linked it to something that you love. So if you can, you know, convince yourself that it's like, oh man, this is going to be so good later. And it can, I guess, inspire you to do that thing that you feel like you need to do. And then you, you get like a reward mechanism from it as well, which is pretty cool, right? Like using just tools to do the right thing, I think is wise. And I think as a society, if we can do that, um, I mean, on individual levels and as a societal level, I mean, we can we can make big change that way, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what is nice about kind of these discussions about minimalism is that it it does not require the world to all shift. If we can get a small portion of the population of the world to make incremental small changes, I know a lot of environmentalists are going to say, "Oh, obviously, that's never going to change," but that is a part of the catalyst of, of the mm -hmm. direction that we need to go and it really does have a huge impact. And what I would say is that it is kind of a catalyst because when people stop, when people start making those decisions, it usually leads to other areas of in their life becoming affected by it and, and it kind of sets them on a course to kind of, like I said, re-examine some of the other things that they, they thought were absolutely necessary to their happiness um, right. try to scale back a little bit and and I think that that's um, a piece of the environmental movement kind of argument that I don't see highlighted nearly enough it's almost like hmm. you know this idea that we're going to come up with a new technology that's going to allow everyone to not change our lifestyles in any capacity is, is like the belief of most people that we just need to kind of vote for the right politicians and then they will like somehow magically create these these perfectly um, available energy sources so none of us have to take any kind of sacrifice in our life is just not a reality. Um, right. And, and so my very much belief is that it's like it is achieving carbon emission targets. That's a really good one to just kind of talk about right about that is going to require a huge amount of people to do less. It's going to require new energy sources, but we're also going to right. reflect on what it is that we're doing that contributes. And what I am here to say is that there, 
is things that require a lot of carbon that really do lead to happiness. And there is other things that are not necessarily contributing to happiness that still require a huge amount of carbon footprint. Let's, as a society, start really having those conversations, lining it out on the things that we want to prioritize, and, and really try to scale back on the rest of it. Um, not in not just for environmental reasons, but because we actually can create a healthier, happier society with with a happier population. You know, I honestly, I like the idea, like I like the way you're thinking. I mean, the idea of saying, okay, we're not just gonna broad strokes. It's like everybody, carbon's bad, you use car, you're, you produce carbon, you're bad. Let's, uh, let's just all change and make it uh, whatever. And it's just a huge costly thing, which again, it does have to have a cost. But I think the idea of like, Trimming the fat, I guess, like the, the and, and like getting rid of the most wasteful things, the things that don't bring happiness. I think that's like, it's wise. It's like being, being more thoughtful, more purposeful with the, the decisions that we can make as individuals and as a society. And I think that's, that's a, it's a smart way of going about it because you're going to get a lot more response from people and response is what's going to create that change, right? Because for one it's, guy to get on a soapbox and start yelling, that doesn't change anything. It's the people who have to listen to that guy in the soapbox that are going to change it, right? So... I think that you got to speak to people in a way they want to hear it and they want to listen, right? And I think that's wise the way you're talking, right? Well, thank you. And, you know, I, I see it as very much the necessity of looking for the win-win kind of multi-purpose solutions. Right. Um, and, and so when you can describe something like paring back on meat consumption as this win-win because obviously it's going to, you know, we all ingest too much meat typically in this country. So it's going to make you healthier. It's going to allow you to live longer. You're going to be trimmer. You're going to look better. You're, you know, you're, the response in your figure um, or just from society is going to be different. But then to also pair it with that idea that you also are going to create these moments in your life where you're really going to remember them for how amazing that meat tastes because right. you allowed those gaps. That's like a perspective of kind of a win-win. Um, right. And, you know, like, I, I think about it in a lot of just like when I'm looking for policies towards tiny homes that I see as being attainable or achievable, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That essentially looking for ways where, yeah, you can, you know, you can describe it as not just a, a gift to one situation, but it's actually, it's a, it's a multi-pronged approach to address a variety of kind of societal ills um, and all it takes, you know, and when it comes down to me, I talk about tiny homes, you know, what I'm right. trying to talk about is how this one tool is like this, this stone that we can knock out a whole bunch of birds with one toss. Right. Well, and you know what, to, to circle it back to what we were just talking about in tiny homes, I think like the, the pop, popularization, if I said that right, the, 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 of the tiny home movement, like something that you've been a big part of, like, I think that's such a, a cool example of that. I mean, if we talk about minimalism and living with less and uh, shrinking footprints, like most people are not super concerned with that. However, there's a ton of tiny home fans out there and they weren't fans because of the shrinking footprint or because of all of that. They're fans because they're really cool. And I think you get people in the door with people being like, wow, this is really cool. This is neat, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden they come to this realization that there's like a different way to live. And I think that sometimes by bringing that thing of interest to them, helping them first of all see a different way of going about living, all of a sudden it's like, and the, the results of that different way of living are this. And it's again, we go back to that win-win. And I think that's kind of a, yeah, that, that like 
bringing things into the whatever the zeitgeist where it's like this is this is okay this is this is another valuable way to live and it's and it, and it brings value to you as an individual and brings value to society in all these different ways like these multiple prongs that you were discussing right i think that's pretty cool it's a way to again the win-win <laughs> yeah i mean i i see that um and what what it ends up bringing me to right when i look at the win-win is that you're trying to kind of almost like chess you're like well okay if somebody legalizes tiny homes in their community in this way how does that look out into the future you know what does this look like a generation from now um and when you start extrapolating on the kind of ideas to kind of back up whether or not you think it's a legitimate solution that's actually going to bring positivity to society versus you know a, a problem which is kind of the root of the disagreement within society about right. tiny homes. Is this right. going to be a, be a net benefit or is this is going to, you know, be the destruction of the American dream, right? Um, right. And, and so what I tend to do that a lot of kind of advocates don't necessarily is try is, is um, just uh, allow myself to extrapolate a little further in terms of my thought process on how this can affect not just you know a family's financial um, reality but how this and these types of policies can really um, saturate into society and change things for generations to come right and and so you know that's where i mean if <laughs> if you talk to my wife she'll be tell you it's really annoying because to me it's like no matter what is in the news or anything in my mind, I'm going to tell her how it all comes back to housing and how tiny homes relate to all of it, right? And so it's like, yeah. I, I might just be, you know, psychotic in that way, but I just see so many connections between housing and how we, you know, our built society, um, the built environment and how it affects the lives of, of human beings and, and our country and from the econ economics of it to environmentalism to um, the, the health of society to even people's physical fitness, um, to things like, you know, domestic violence and racial relations and economics, um, equality. So it's, um, to me, it's, it's a really broad, uh, it has, it, it's a, it's a tool with very broad potential for society and it keeps mm -hmm. me passionate about it. I love I'd it. be happy okay. to. <laughs> yeah, you can tell your passion about it through everything you do and just the, the life trajectory that you have been on, how, you know, through tiny houses, it's just impacted so many aspects of your life and an opportunity for you to teach off of those platforms too, which is really beautiful. Tell us what's up in, what's up in your life these days? What's, uh, um, what's well, you know. COVID has kind of shifted my life around quite a bit. I've been, you know, living in Washington, which is where I've been living for the last 20 years, but I've been actually here instead of traveling all the time. Um, and I've and you're living really... in a tiny house? Nope, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm in a condo. I'm in a one-bedroom apartment with my wife. We've been there for three years, um, you know, and that's, you know, partly because... You know, it's my tiny house, at least the one that I lived in was not, it was a bachelor pad without a bathroom. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it was something more great for me at that moment. Um, but really, the truth of the matter is it's not legal to live in a tiny home in Washington State. 
in a space that I actually want to live in, right? So there is one trailer park that I know I could get a tiny home and I'm just like, that's not my vision, that's not my dream. Um, but I am, you know, a huge piece of my life right now, currently, is working with the county here in Whatcom to, uh, I'm part of an advisory group on tiny homes that was kind of put together by the county council. Um, well, the committee was put together by the county council. I went and talked at a, a public hearing and then they actually put together this kind of group, advisory group that I'm a part of. So we have been working on a proposal that very much is like what has been um, put through in a lot of places in California and now the state of Maine. Um, and it's essentially looking at uh, removing the limitation on RVs from 180 days, which is what it currently is, which does not allow you to live in it, and removing that prohibition if the RV is built um, in excess of the RV standards to standards that are um, written and, and allowed by the county, right? And so that's kind of the proposal that we're, we're in, and we're kind of like in the 11th hour of it, and it's pretty, mm. pretty exciting. So like, to me, I've worked a lot kind of on national levels talking, you know, I've been to the, uh, you know, the National Convention of Mayors and talked to the mayors. I've been to Washington, D.C. and talked to HUD. I've, so I've kind of like done a lot of talking about this on a national level. I've never really gotten involved on the local level. And um, COVID kind of gave me that option, right, that opportunity because mm -hmm. I'm actually here. And it's, been, and it's been really, really educational, honestly, because as much as I thought I knew about all of this, which, you know, I, granted, I, I know a fair amount of it. it it's just really eye-opening when you start kind of getting down into the nuts and bolts of what is stopping tiny homes from mm. becoming legal. The, um, and, and time and time again, what you run into is just there is a lot of confusion about what a tiny home is right. and what is stopping it. And it's not just from you know, the general public. It's also from council members and policymakers that before they even can like vote on a tiny home they have to they have to create these like multiple month studies to just figure out what they are right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly so true we, so true just so you know we're like getting into this point where we have gotten to the place where the county director was given our proposal and he basically put the kibosh on it because he said it was too much liability right which in my mind is kind of a, it's a hard one to hear liability is like the cop-out word right yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what i said i said yeah oh, what a, you know like what you meant to say is that it sounds like a lot of work you're busy mm -hmm. and i don't think yeah. i can take it on right now you know yeah, yeah. but wow, so where did that leave you well, we've gotten in touch with the, um, the a state representative who has jumped on our side and, and now has scheduled a meeting with the county director. And there is a state law that was put through in 2019 that essentially defined a tiny home and permitted uh, local municipalities to define it themselves as well. So there really should not be any legality issues in terms of liability that he should be concerned about and so he needs somebody at the state to kind of reinform that reinforce that hopefully right. we'll overcome that then they'll be able to incorporate our recommendations into the proposal 
Then all I got to do is talk to a couple council members, get them on board before we, it actually goes to vote, and then start building tiny houses. Right. Oh man, good for you. That's exciting, hey? That's very exciting. You're in the home stretch then, hey? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but it is really, it, it is really great having gotten up gotten on the lo local level and kind of gotten into the weeds with it with people because it puts me in a position to really have a lot more informed place when I start talking about this stuff. When it comes down to it, could you summarize like one passion or like what gets you out of bed in the morning and you keep coming back to tiny homes and you keep knocking on the doors and what's the fire there? I think the fire is just like the same fire that anybody feels when they feel like they have a big idea, mm -hmm. right? It's like, I have a big idea, you know, it could happen in any kind of sphere, right? And you're, and where it comes from is, yeah, it comes from people kind of, like I said, like looking at it like a little bit of a chessboard and, hey, if we do this, then this happens and this, and you like kind of look to it in the future. And when people do that and then they look and they see this bright kind of future from this one solution that's what i believe it is is it's like i really do believe that tiny homes um have the potential to really really create some very healthy things for society right and and that kind of started out more as like a gut react gut idea you know it's like a gut feeling you know coming from being a skier and a ski bum and just not wanting a huge amount of stuff to kind of pull my life down but then also being a carpenter and being paid to construct these you know we were building essentially you know mansions they weren't quite the size of mansions but it was like boulder colorado so they're like incredibly expensive beautiful beautiful homes and just looking at the function of these spaces right because it was yeah. i think what really ignited my passion for this whole thing was before I ever heard of tiny homes, I was paid to build these major remodels in, in Boulder, Colorado. And almost every single client that we worked for had already raised their family in like yes. a modest ranch home, right? Yeah. So their kids are all off of college. They're finally free. They're empty nesters. Plus they live in Boulder and their house is appreciated like three times. So yeah. what do they do? They pull all that money right about the time that they probably should go and like take some vacations. And they pay me and my buddies their entire life savings to completely redo their home, double the size, cherry trim, and right at the moment when they actually don't need the space. Yeah. And I, I came out of that world and it was like, it was just, it, it was frustrating and mind boggling because. Not all, but a, a large majority of homes that we were working in, we were not building them, we were building the custom staircases and railings and all that. It was often, it's like, finally our kids are out of the house, we can buy our 5,000 square foot dream home and build our, you know, and it's like, well, it's, it's empty. It's empty, and it just, it, it drove me crazy. Yeah. And yeah, from yeah. a design standpoint, it drove me crazy because the larger the homes got, the more poorly they were designed. And uh, because it stopped mattering how you use the space. And so it, if you looked at it from like with that critical eye, uh, it just, the larger they got, the worse they got from that standpoint. And, and the smaller they got, the better they got because it started to mean something all of a sudden. It drove me crazy. 
I mean, and I don't want to criticize like the, you know, the architects or the builders that I was working with or the clients, you know, but it was just what I came to mean was like, yeah, that motivation, that experience was this, as somebody who was already, you know, aware of the environmental needs for change, right? It didn't feel good to participate in right. that, participate in creating space that was beautiful that I did not believe was necessary or necessarily really appreciated quite like it should be. And then, you know, on top of that, what I saw was this problem because I'm like, wait a second, none of these people have a retirement savings, right? Mm -hmm. None of them have a retirement. So what does that mean? When everybody's parents is taking every penny they have, reinvesting it back into their home, well, it became very clear that what they were doing is they were using their home as retirement savings. And so yeah. that was kind of the second thing for me that was like, whoa, we got to kind of talk about this because, all right, we already know that this population is kind of the baby boomers, right? And they're this big bubble in our total population. And what has happened, what was I was, you know, feeling like on a gut level and then started researching and realizing like, whoa, there's a real thing here where we're just amassing so much wealth in housing that's all being owned by one portion of the population. And that one portion of the population is aging to a point that typically uh, in, a, in the United States, you would have people selling their home. Well, home that's not happening. Homeowner retention rates are going to places that they've never seen before. And as a builder, I'm like, ooh, these people are all trying to cash in on their house like it's a casino chip. You know, mm. or not a chip, a stock market stock, mm. right? Mm. And and I and I'm just like, I'm not quite. I just don't understand how I don't read stories about housing and stories about the future of housing that aren't including this like issue of what happens when all of the baby boomers go to sell out, cash in on their retirement plan, and who's going to absorb those homes? And so. I don't think it's a, um, I think our housing is in a very unhealthy space. And there's a, there's a report in 2018, I think, called The Coming Exodus of Older Homeowners. It was put out by Fannie Mae and a professor from USC. It essentially just was looking at attrition rates. And attrition in housing essentially is meaning anytime somebody sells it without actually wanting to sell it, but they're kind of just forced from death or sickness or anything um, and if you just follow attrition rates what they're showing is there's just millions of homes that are in the next decade going to be put on the market strictly from attrition and mm. there is not enough there's mathematically not enough wealth that is held by younger populations to absorb that wealth transfer and the big problem is if you do have a lot of people holding on to housing as an investment and then appreciation starts to flatline or maybe even dip, right? The more people that are in the housing as an investment versus living in it as their home, the more people are going to be able to sell their home. The more people that are at the end of their life who are not raising children and don't have families are much more likely to be able to sell that home, especially if that was the plan all along. So, you know, to me, there really is a real potential for too many homes and too much supply um, flooding the market in the, in the coming decade. 
and the way that I see tiny homes really having a role to play in simply limiting the scale of the attrition. And what I mean by that is attrition isn't just death. Attrition is just like not being able to afford your mortgage. Mm -hmm. So tiny homes and backyards, especially movable tiny homes, provide this opportunity for um, Americans who would otherwise be forced to sell their homes, older Americans, to downsize into their backyard, mm -hmm. rent out their home, put that onto the rental market, avoid putting onto the home sale market, free up a home that's the size for a family in need, move into something much more, you know, ecologically sound um, and, and, you know, financially stable. So it's, it's really about not just like creating more housing stock, but enabling older Americans who otherwise might participate in this um, kind of uh, flood of homes getting put onto the market that could drop everybody's value to give them another option from doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating take as far as seeing beyond just that little surface piece and saying what's gonna happen five, 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road. And uh, I think that, I mean, ships, what do they say? Ships don't turn quickly or easily. So, I mean, if you don't start making those changes, if you don't start making that, that little difference, the big difference will never happen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's like I was talking about before. I mean, it, we are trying to provide affordable housing, but if you frame it in this context where it's like, there is also another issue that is kind of approaching our society. And so these small homes aren't just like giving poor people a place to live. They're actually going to become a tool that people that otherwise might contribute to this problem can use to solve the problem and now not, not impact the overall supply the same way. And, and so it's that same thing of like multi, multi-pronged approach. Um, yes, yeah. So, you know, I, and, I feel and, like anytime you're trying to get a point across, if you're trying to teach somebody some, something or change their mind, if you can say the same thing in seven different ways, there's a very good chance you're going to understand one of them or resonate with one of them, right? So if you can yeah. say, hey, I believe this tidy home movement uh, is very important, and you can say, well, it's important because of the housing crisis or it's important because of the ecological footprint, and you can just start just firing off all of these good reasons. I mean, if you're talking to a person who's making decisions, six of those might fall on deaf ears, but that seventh one might hit home, and it might be the one that is a catalyst for that that change and, and, and who knows which one it'll be. So I think the idea of that multi-pronged approach is, yeah, it's, it's wise. I think it's, it's really great. Well, and I found the movement as a whole, like since we've been a part of it as, as new builders on the block, so to say, I've just learned so much from the movement because there is that affordable housing piece. There is considerations for vulnerable populations. You look at housing for veterans. You look at the environmental aspect. You look at freeing up your life to have, where do you invest your time? And the monetary side of it, where do you invest your money? And there's just so many touch points of a group of people that are just so incredibly thoughtful that the way that we choose to live every single day has so much impact. And I'm gonna kind of circle back to the beginning of the conversation and what you said. And one thing that I've, I've enjoyed from your approach to these things is it's not like you have to climb the mountain right away. It's that you can take small steps and small incremental steps on this journey. All of those are valuable, such as your example of eating meat once a, once a week. It's so much, once a day. It's so much easier 
to, to start on a trajectory of thinking about how my food consumption affects the, it affects, um, the planet. But instead of just all of a sudden turning in and, and becoming so drastic in something that's unsustainable or completely unlife-giving for somebody, it's, it's the little decisions that I can make every day that can contribute to happiness. When you feel like you're moving towards something and you're making an impact, happiness comes because you're a contributor to the greater impact of society. Like even down to an example for, for us, it would be like a small thing such as compost. You know, we have the hobby farm and we try and grow as much of our own produce as we can. And my kids know where all those food scraps go. They go into the pail underneath the sink. And then it's when we walk down to put the compost there that we have such meaningful conversations about how these food scraps produce this that goes here and that creates greater um, richness in the soil that helps to produce greater things. And then when we, when we eat this way, there's less packaging on our, on our, um, on our food, which is less, you know, and on and on it goes. And it's, and it's those little decisions there um, over time that I think, as you say, make those great, great impacts in the world. But we all have to, we all have to, to choose to, to do those things. Well, and, and it gets easier. Right. I mean, absolutely. Anything that you do that you know is good for yourself in the long run, that maybe takes some self-discipline um, in the short term. Right. It's like we know. It's it's right. It's back to cultivating happiness. We know that if I work out today, and you know, I go and do something and accomplish something physical, at the end of the day, I'm going to feel better than if I hadn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and even though, like, consciously we know that exercise still hurts and it's really difficult to kind of get into it but the thing about exercise is such a good metaphor for so many other things because it actually starts to feel good you know the first time you go if you've been on the couch for a couple months and you go and and work out uh it hurts it sucks sucks. (laughs) you start doing it like you know a little more regularly all of a sudden it feels good. And then you get to like the point where my wife's at and it's like, she needs it to feel good. She recognizes this about herself. So it's, um, (laughs) and to me, yeah, it's, that's a really good example of how these, these little things that we do in our lives can easily turn into a bigger thing that we do in our lives. You know, if we bike, if we ride our bike to work one day a week, we're going to start to go down there. All of a sudden, it's not going to feel as far or it's not going to hurt as much after a while. And it might turn into three times a week. You know, it might turn into every day. And um, you're never going to give yourself that opportunity unless you, like I say, you, you allow those, those spaces in your life where you're not driving every day, you know. Yeah. Zach, who, who would have been an influential person on your journey to help you to cultivate this mindset of pursuing happiness and knowing how to make some of these decisions in your life? Because I I love your perspective. Yeah. um, You know, I've had a lot of different mentors. Um, You know, I I feel like I've been kind of a natural optimist um, growing up. but it's it's difficult for me to think about the mentors in my life and know where that specific quality came from. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't really know. I don't know. I have, I have had a blessed life. 
you know, I had straight teeth, you know, I, I wasn't a, a young kid who, you know, got sick a lot, you know, and so from an early age, I was recognizing that I was, I had a lot going for me and I was really grateful for it, you know, I think a lot of, one of the biggest mistakes, especially from kids, is, is the ones that are really blessed sometimes never learn how to play down, you know? Like if you are the big kid and you're real strong and you go and play basketball with the other kids and you're too dominant, like it's not any fun to play with you, right? And so kids who are in that position, they either learn how to kind of play down and have fun with everybody and recognize, hey, I have some gifts in basketball. If I just try as hard as I can, it's not gonna be fun for anybody versus recognizing it's going to be more fun for myself and everybody if I chill out just a little bit. And I think kids that don't, don't find that tactic uh, end up really unhappy later on because society kind of pulls away from them and they end up not having the, the support and the, um, the social support that they thought that they would. Um, so... I don't know. I don't know. For me, I was like really appreciative of everything that was blessed with, and uh, and it and it's not lost. I definitely recognize that it's a gift from my parents. That you know, was a gift from their parents. That you know, was a I gift from like, my brother too. You know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like strange enough. I don't know. I feel like listening to you talk, you have like. A, I don't know, what is the opposite of a famine mindset? Like maybe a feast mindset, where it's like there's a confidence. You have a confidence that you're gonna have enough. You have a confidence that that thing you're waiting for is gonna come, it's gonna be there. A confidence that if you don't, whatever, reject that guy and win in that basketball game by 25 points, that you're still gonna be respected. And that, I feel like a living life with a confidence that uh, what you need is gonna be there. I think maybe, I, and maybe I'm speaking or thinking too deep into it. Maybe that, that's, that's been one thing that maybe has allowed you to, uh, to act in that way. And I think that's, that's pretty cool, too. And again, if I'm out to lunch, that's great, too. But. No, I mean, it's a, it, it is a result of privilege, guys. I mean, it really is. Yeah. You know, my privilege wasn't the traditional white privilege people think about in terms of, like, affluence. You know, I didn't come from a really, really wealthy family. I came from a tight family, and I came from a father who owned his own business, right? And so the, it, even though like the money wasn't the wealth, it was like a really great environment to grow up around as a kid. You know, the, it had taught me a lot of the mechanics that I use today. Um, it taught me how not to be frightened of steel, how to work with steel, how to also work with wood. You know, these kind of things I see as, as that privilege. Um, and then the other piece of it, and I talked to this about with other skiers, right, is like, as a professional ski athlete, you're essentially getting paid to do what a lot of people do for their vacations, right? You we know, pay a lot I of mean, money to do what you get paid for, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like in those communities, if you are an athlete in that space, the amount of regard and you know um, social applause that you have, I don't know if that's a good way to say it, it's tremendous, right? So it's like, right. not only is it this like this incredible thing that you get to do, but then you're also regarded as this very, you know, impressive person for having achieved it. Um, and, and so I try to tell other, you know, skiers that I'm a part of, it's like, we have double privilege, right? right. There's double privilege in it. 
our lives are privileged, even for white people. It's like an incredible privilege Absolutely. to be. Yeah. yeah. You've been able um, to see and experience a lot of really cool things in life. And to hold a lot of gratitude for that, I think, keeps that Absolutely. valuable rather than maybe detrimental, right? Well, when I got hired onto the TV show, that was one thing that I was very much, there's two things I was aware of. One thing was I was very much aware that I cared a lot about the tiny home movement and that I felt like a responsibility to the people that I loved that were within that movement to do it justice and represent it in a, in a way that, you know, would be as well received as possible, right? So that we could get this thing to actually move forward. And, you know, so I shaved my beard right off, right off that, cut my hair, you know, did some things, cleaned up my hair. Cleaned yourself bit. up? Yeah, I tried to be presentable and, you know, it didn't work, but, uh, you know, at least I managed to keep it employed. But, you know, not, yeah, to, to kind of be a representative was really important to me. Um, and then, Wait, I forget what the second thing was. <laughs> that, was the first, that was the first thing. Those two things I would say. Yeah. Shaving oh, no, the beard no. was the important part. <laughs> well, and then the second part was just understanding that there there is a reason that I was hired for that position, right? There is a reason that I was got myself to be even considered for that space. And that was a lot of hard work and a lot of self-sacrifice and a lot of um, digging deep within myself that got me into that position and so for me I was like well the worst thing that could happen is I'd like lose contact with who that person was that got me here you know mm -hmm. what I mean and so then Absolutely. you talk about the confidence and I'm just like wow as long as I can as long as I can humble myself to make sure that I never get too good for anything mm -hmm. you know and I'll essentially be the same guy that got me here. And as long as I can be that hardworking motherfucker that, like, does not, you know, doesn't mess around with, like, objectives of what I want to do and, and doesn't allow, um, you know, piddly distractions like the need for sleep or hunger or something like that get in the way of, you know, achieving what I want to do. You know, as long as I remain that person, then I feel like I can be confident going into things because, like, if push comes to shove, I'll just do whatever it takes. And that's kind of like, you know, what's gotten me here. And as long as I can kind of maintain being that guy, I feel like pretty good moving forward. Hey, man, I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank well. you so much for taking time out of your schedule and just for allowing us to sit and have this conversation. I love to just continue it on and on. I feel like I have all these questions in my mind that I just love to ask you. Um, but we do need to, we do need to wrap it up. We're wrapping up the podcast with asking all of our guests the same question. And this can be as, as deep or as light as you like it to be. But Zach, what's bringing you joy these days? My wife, my dog, and uh, not having, you know, kind of working with my father has been amazing in COVID. Um, you know, he's in his seventies and having had this mandatory break from travel, even though it seems crazy, like the show pretty much is, you know, potentially canceled, but it's like been such a blessing to me because not only am I at a moment where I was exhausted from the travel, but there was parts of my life that needed attending that I hadn't been attending, um, you know, and, and 
working with my father and really kind of helping him with his business and getting to the point where he can retire is an important thing for my general happiness to know that my, my parents are doing good. Um, and so, yeah, just family and being able to focus on, on those, those priorities for this last year and a half has been awesome. It's awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks a lot for doing this. We appreciate you. We appreciate what you're doing for the, for, uh, the movement and for the popularity of Tiny Homes. Uh, we appreciate your perspective and that you don't seem to be the kind of guy that takes no for an answer. Yeah. And, We're grateful uh, for, for all of the, the work that you've dug in and the ways that over the years you've just, you've dug into the hard work of the movement and we, yeah, we just want to say thank you. Yep. Well, thank you for that. It's an honor to be a part of it, guys. It's, uh, cool. Thank you for, I always tell people, thank you for allowing me to be part of your movement. <laughs> cool. Right on, man. It's great talking with you. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that. Um, we did, and uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, check out his Instagram, which Heather will explain because I don't know how it works, but he's always, she's always showing me some nugget of wisdom that he's kind of posting up there that makes me think, and I really appreciate that too. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Um, yeah, nuggets of wisdom and, oh man, awesome ski videos. Uh, yeah, that too. I'm always <laughs> loving it. It's like, hey Kev, check out where Zach's skiing today. Yeah. It's just absolutely beautiful. So it's at Zach Giffen on Instagram. Uh, give him a follow and uh, for more of his journey and to be inspired. Thanks guys.